This podcast discusses eating disorders and suicide and contains content that may trigger a response for those who have a history of eating disorders, thoughts, and behaviors. Listener discretion is advised. They say that people with eating disorders, they'll be alive, but they're not living. And that's what I found with my daughter. She didn't have, you know, the passion for life, um, but she also didn't want to die. And she was kind of like in this area where a lot of people with eating disorders are, where it's this hopelessness of, I don't think I can recover. I don't know what the path forward is. I'm scared to give up my eating disorder because I think that it gives me something. It makes me special. It's just, it's incredibly complicated. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Today's episode deals with some very difficult topics. We're going to talk about a very personal story of a child's battle with anorexia nervosa. There's little for me to say by way of introduction other than that it's a topic that we would often rather pretend is not relevant to us, and accordingly not something we need to discuss. When I first told someone that this is what I would be discussing on today's podcast, her initial reaction was that it's important, but what does it have to do with orthodoxy? I do discuss specific orthodox manifestations of anorexia with my guest, but the issue of eating disorders concerns Orthodox Jews primarily because we are no more immune to them than any other population. And in some ways, parts of Orthodoxy may have additional challenges in a desire to cover it up, to pretend that it's not a problem. Quite apart from our religious background, we need to confront the reality of eating disorders because, as my guest says at the end of the podcast, they affect so many people. We need to talk about eating disorders in order to eliminate the stigma associated with them. They are illnesses, and they are illnesses that involve tremendous pain, suffering, and sometimes death. We treat them as something other than illnesses at our own peril. Judy Krasna is the executive director of Families Empowered and Supporting Treatment for Eating Disorders. She is a writer and an eating disorders advocate, both in Israel and globally. Judy is an active, expert-by-experience volunteer in the Academy for Eating Disorders and has been offering peer support to families of people with eating disorders for over a decade. Judy is deeply committed to educating the public about eating disorders and promoting awareness about their danger and consequences, especially after her daughter Gabriella took her own life after a prolonged battle with anorexia nervosa. Judy Krasna, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum podcast. Thank you for hosting me. Let's open up with the very tragic story of your daughter's eating disorder and its aftermath. My daughter, at the time when she developed an eating disorder, was 14. And her eating disorder started as a very innocuous diet. Um, Her best friend came to her and said, my mother wants to go on a diet because she just had a baby and she wants to lose the baby weight. So my mother invited me to go on a diet with her. And I don't want to do it with my mother. I want to do it with a friend. So I'd like you to join me on my diet. And my daughter came to me and told me about the diet. And I said to her, Gabriella, you don't need to go on a diet. And quickly she saw that I wasn't really, you know, into this idea. And she said, oh, you know, she backtracked a little bit and she said, no, it's not really a diet. I just want to start eating healthy. And eating healthy are the buzzwords for parents, right? Your kid wants to eat healthy. You are thrilled. Your kid wants to exercise more. You are thrilled. What could be bad about health and exercise? 
So, you know, my daughter at the time, she was a really picky eater as a child. She only ate kid food. You know, she was 14 years old. She ate schnitzel and pizza and pasta and grilled cheese and pancakes. And that was her sum total diet. And there were no fruits and there were no vegetables. And this was not a kid who I was worried about eating healthy. So I was kind of like, okay, you want to try eating healthy? You want to put in a fruit or a vegetable? That's great. And so this started probably in the spring. And she told me that she and her friend had planned the last day of school. They were going to go to the beach and then they were going to go out for ice cream. And that was going to be the official end of the diet. So it seemed safe. There was a timeline to it. And during the summer, um, I noticed that she wasn't eating. Um, but again, it was summertime and she was a teenager. So, you know, I would see at noon, I would kind of like walk in to the living room and I'd be like, Avrila, did you eat breakfast? And she'd be like, oh yeah, you know, I just ate, right? I just woke up. I'm not hungry or I'll eat soon. And this was a child who never lied about anything ever. The most honest kid in the world. And it never occurred to me that she was lying when I said to her, Gavriela, did you eat? And so the whole summer, I really, it was so, it was just, you know, niggling at me, but it wasn't something that I really felt, you know, like, oh my God, I never see her eat. Um, it was just kind of like it came and went, the thought that maybe she's not eating as much as she should. And then at the end of the summer, we went clothes shopping for school and she's in a dressing room and she needed a different size shirt. So she asked me to get it. And I brought it to her and she reached her arm out of the dressing room and my heart stopped. It was like a really like a, a concentration camp victim. That was how thin her arm was. And I realized at that moment that, you know, there was something really wrong. So I went to the front of the store out of earshot. I called my husband. I said, okay, I think we have a problem. And we sat down that night with Gabriella and we spoke to her and we said, look, you know, clearly you're not eating, clearly you're losing weight, clearly there's a problem. And she admitted to it right away. And she said, you're right, I do have a problem, but I can handle it. Now, this was a child who handled everything. I mean, she was the most competent, capable person on the earth. She was like that at age three and certainly at age 14. If she said she could handle it, I had no reason to think that she couldn't. And so she said, please give me a little bit of time to get it under control. And we were naive and we didn't realize that time is the enemy and that eating disorders are like any other illness. The longer you know you have them, the more entrenched they become, the more poor your outcome is at the end. And so we said, okay. And we gave it a little bit of time. And at a certain point, a few weeks later, my neighbor came over to me and said, Gabriella really doesn't look well. I think she needs help. So, and I was really grateful. And just by the way, to anyone listening, if you see something, say something, you know, if you see someone's child and you think there's something wrong, you know, err on the side of caution, say something to the parent, because sometimes we know there's something wrong, but it takes an outside person telling us about it to really get us to react and to respond. And this uh -huh. was the case. So I called a friend who's a pediatrician and I said, how do I handle this? And she said, call your doctor and explain the situation before you take your daughter in so that you can speak freely without your daughter being present and then see what happens. So I did that and our pediatrician just couldn't see the eating disorder. And even though I brought her in and I said, she's losing weight, she admits to having a problem. And he kept saying, well, she looks depressed, but she has a flat affect, but I'm not sure this is an eating disorder. And at a certain point, he even said to me, mom, take a step back. Um, because I was being so aggressive about getting her into treatment. 
And by the time my daughter got into treatment, the level of care really wasn't high enough, but we didn't know that at the time. And she ended up in the hospital for seven months. And that started... Judy, can I ask you a question just about that? Sure. When you say the level of care wasn't high enough, do you mean in the hospital during those seven months? No, she she was she went first. Um, the Kupot Holim all have clinics, um, and at first she was referred to one of those clinics. It's kind of an outpatient clinic. It's once a week dietitian therapist, um, and she needed a higher level of care than just once a week clinic. At that point, she needed, you know, now they have like day centers in hospitals where you can go for the afternoon and there's like three supervised meals and there's treatment. Um, and she needed something more intensive than just a once a week dietitian and therapist, mm-hmm. um, okay. which is why she landed in the hospital. Basically, it took them a few months to realize this isn't working. She's losing weight. And she headed to the hospital for seven months. And it was a truly horrific experience for us as parents. Um, our daughter wasn't getting any better. Um, she, her weight was improving, but her state of mind was just, you know, it, it kind of just tanked and she was incredibly depressed. And the biggest issue with us in the hospital was that we were really blamed for our child's eating disorder. Um, what do you mean by that? uh, How was that manifest? Well, um, it was manifested in the most blunt way. We had what was called a family therapy session. Um, The head of the unit was our, you know, psychiatrist. And we had a family session. I think it was Hanukkah time. It was definitely a school vacation where I was asked, we were asked to bring in all of our kids. So we're all sitting in a circle. My youngest was too young. So he was just sitting in a corner playing. And basically the, you know, psychiatrist said, okay, we're going to go around the circle and everyone is going to say how they caused Gabriella's eating disorder. Oh. I mean, it can't get more blunt than that. Right. Mm. And we all looked at each other and we were like, okay. And that was basically the approach. You know, there was a, actually a tragic story um, in a funny way is one day we were visiting her in the hospital and we had a session with her psychologist uh, beforehand. We had like a, my husband and I had like a session with the psychologist and she basically told us in a session that we caused our eating disorder, our daughter's eating disorder because we were overweight. And she said it straight out, like our weight contributed to the development of her eating disorder. And we came back into my daughter's room to wait for her. And we were so upset. I mean, somebody tells you that your weight caused your kid's eating disorder. And I was upset. And my daughter's roommate's mother and father were there. And the mother looked at me and saw that I was upset and said, what's wrong? And I said, we were just in this session with the psychologist. And she said that we caused Gabrielle's eating disorder because we're overweight. And she started laughing. And I said, that's not nice. You know, that was really traumatic for me. Why are you laughing? And she said, because yesterday, the same therapist said, my husband and I caused our daughter's eating disorder because we were underweight. So, oh my God. you know, this basically, and this was the level of care that we got. I mean, these are not exaggerations. There's How many years ago family. was this? This was 15 years ago but it could have been yesterday, meaning it's the same practice. It's the same mindset. It's the same everything. There was nothing changed in the past 15 years when it comes to not blaming parents and accepting them as partners in treatment. And we were really pushed away. Um, and, and in being pushed away, we were unable to support our daughter. You know, we weren't given any tools to be able to support her. We weren't given any empowerment to be able to support her. And we were given the opposite. We were, you know, disempowered. And I would guess, you can tell me if I'm wrong, that those same psychologists were probably telling Gabriella the same problems, meaning these issues exactly. are caused by your parents. 
<laughs> and that is the, that was the biggest problem is they drove a wedge between us and our daughter, assuming that there was some dysfunction, assuming that there was some trauma, assuming that there was some root cause. And the bottom line is that there wasn't to the point where at some point, Gabriella asked one of her sisters, I wasn't abused, was I? And her sister said, what are you talking about? And she said, well, they keep saying there must be some root cause and they keep implying that I was abused. So maybe I forgot it. And it was like, I mean, and that <laughs> that's abuse, um, you know, basically putting it in a 14 year old's mind that she must have been abused or she must have a dysfunctional family or she must have suffered trauma at the hands of her family because why else would she have an eating disorder? And that was really what we faced. And it was, I mean, it's really hard, you know, knowing the end of the story to look back and say, oh, if we had done X or Y differently, then the outcome could have been different. Um, and I try really hard not to focus on that um, because at least to know we're good and it has no purpose. Um, but I truly believe that those seven months of such horrible treatment definitely contributed to the poor outcome, you know, that, that we got, Gabriella got, and, and as a family, it definitely made a difference. And those seven months were at the very beginning. Exactly. And the beginning is when you really need to get the best treatment because basically between the first and third year of developing an eating disorder is your best chance of a full recovery. Years three to five, it goes down a little bit, but still very possible, you know, Eating disorders take an average of seven years to recover from. Seven years. And that's years. what people don't tell you. Seven years. And nobody tells you that. You know, you assume. And I thought I was so naive. My daughter went in the hospital. I thought, okay, she's going to come out healthy, right? You know, you break your arm, you go in, you get a cast. You have an operation, you know, you recover, you come home, you're healthy. Like, I just, in my mind, you go into a hospital sick and you come out healthy. And no one, no one explained to us that this is a process and that this takes a really, really, really long time and that treatment is going to continue for a long time after discharge. And that includes people who have just developed the eating disorder recently as well. It takes a long time to get out of it. A very, very, I mean, again, I don't know what makes one person or one person not recover. I mean, it's not just me, meaning that eating disorder field, it's a, a very big mystery as to why do some people fully recover and why do some people not fully recover. And there are people who are sick for decades and are managed to achieve a full recovery. And there are people who it was discovered immediately and, and they can't recover. So it's so elusive, the whole, what causes it and, you know, what impacts, you know, the trajectory of it and what impacts outcomes. It's really very unknown, but what is known is the beginning is the most important stage, early diagnosis, early identification, early treatment, and good treatment. And we didn't, we didn't get any of those. Wow. Let's go back to your daughter's story. So she was in the hospital for seven months. Let's pick it up from there. Why was she released after seven months? Did they say that she was better or it wasn't working? No. What happened at that point? She was actually thrown out after seven months, literally thrown out. We were told to come and get her. We didn't know, we weren't told to come and get her. We were told to come in for a meeting like a random meeting on a random workday. My husband was in Tel Aviv. He had to come to Jerusalem. Um, we walk in and they said, take your daughter home. <laughs> She'd been there for seven months and we didn't have treatment set up. Like she was, we were talking about discharge, but we hadn't yet set up, okay, what next? And I was, I was panicked. I mean, we couldn't, she wouldn't 
eat? Like, what were we supposed to do with her at home? And they said, don't care, just take her home. And basically we scrambled. I mean, it was horrible. It was really Why did they do that? Because she was losing weight and she was a liability. Mm. You know, she obviously wasn't being treated. She obviously wasn't recovering. So they discharged her to make room for someone else. And, you know, she was literally thrown out. And we were left without any type of treatment. And we ended up going the private route because we didn't have a choice. I mean, you know, and it, it, it cost us a tremendous amount of money um, that we borrowed from family members because it was not affordable at all, but it saved her life. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. we finally, finally found good treatment. It took a year and a half, but we finally got to the point where I could sleep at night because I felt like the people treating her were competent and they knew what they were doing and they truly cared for her. Um, because that's another thing. When your child is sick, you need to feel like the people treating them are caring for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I didn't feel like anyone cared for my daughter as was evident from the fact that they threw her out of the hospital without any you know, plan for further treatment and, and nobody cared. You know, there was no relationship. And so I kind of, you know, once we actually found a team who cared about her, who cared about us, who said, well, she's 15 years old, she's living at home. Well, you parents, you need to be involved in her treatment because, you know, she's not living in a vacuum and you're the ones that are with her. And so finally we were included in treatment and we were given tools and skills and education and what we really needed to be able to support her and to help her and to try to, you know, lead her toward getting well. I wanted to ask about that. How was the family involved? What sorts of tools were you given to be involved in her treatment? So it's very, very important to understand, first of all, that eating disorders are not a choice. Um, You know, people think, oh, she just chooses not to eat. No, she does not choose not to eat. Um, Eating disorders are brain-based. They have genetic influences. It's really important to understand them for what they are. It's very hard to be at a table with somebody um, who refuses to eat, and it takes a lot of understanding and empathy for what they're going through. Um, Because once you understand that it's not a matter of that they don't want to eat, it's that they can't eat, that there's, you know, something preventing them, that there's a voice in their head, um, that, you know, it, it, it really impacts your ability to be more patient, to be more kind, to be more loving, to be more supportive. And we needed those type of skills. We needed someone to really explain to us um, and educate us about eating disorders. Um, also, you know, you need to understand why doesn't my child want to get better? You know, it's kind of like one of these things, your kid, God forbid, has cancer. Well, of course your kid wants to get better. Who wants to have cancer? But when your child has an eating disorder, it's what's called egocentric, which basically means that a person thinks that the eating disorder is helping them, that it's their friend, that it's good for them. So you try to convince somebody, you know, that their eating disorder is bad for them when they really hold this very true belief that no, without my eating disorder, I'd be nothing. My life would fall apart. You know, it's very scary for them to give up the eating disorder. So, and the other thing that you have to understand as a parent is that um, your child can't eat on their own, but if you make them eat, if you sit with them, if you encourage them to take every bite, they can do it. So, you know, it's, again, it's a mindset of this is what I need to do to help my child, but it was really hard. I mean, it was, 
every meal took hours and every meal led into a snack, which led into a meal. Like, you know, our lives were totally taken prisoner by this eating disorder. And we had to sit with her and eat with her if she was going to eat. So that's the investment. I mean, my daughter was in school in Jerusalem. I went, you know, for, you know, the morning meal. I was there by 10. I left from Beit Shemesh. It was an hour, you know, kind of more or less. Got to Jerusalem, sat with her in the school parking lot, supervised her eating. She went back to school. I went to find some place with the internet so I could work for a few hours, came back at two so that I could supervise her lunch, and then rushed home to pick up my seven-year-old at school. And that was every single day for months. So as a parent, you really have to be willing and able to dedicate your entire life to your child's recovery and to helping them to get better. Judy, I want to ask you a question. And of course, as we talked about before, you are not a therapist. This is your own personal experience. But from your own experience, when you say that somebody or a child suffering from an eating disorder looks at that eating disorder as her friend, does this mean that she says, yes, I know I have an eating disorder, but I'm okay with it? Or she says, no, 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 they have an eating disorder. Mine is not an eating disorder. This is just normal. Like, does she understand that she has an eating disorder or does she reject that very diagnosis? So there's also something called anosognosia, which basically means that a person has no awareness of their own illness. Um, You know, you see it with people with schizophrenia, for example, and most people with eating disorders have it. Meaning, you know, if their friend was going to eat nothing but an apple all day, they would look at their friend and say, oh no, that's not healthy, you have to eat more food. But when they do it, they have this feeling of, oh no, no, I'm okay, nothing's gonna hurt me, I'm fine. So they're not able to really understand their own illness. And that's what makes it so hard because as a parent, you're fighting your child and you're fighting your child's illness. Your child and their illness are not on the same page. So basically it's like a three-pronged fight and it's really, really, really hard because there's a lot of emotion involved in that. Meaning who wants to fight their child when she's sick? But you have to if you're going to get them well. So there, there really is a lot of, you know, emotional things that are involved in having a child with an eating disorder. And Judy, this entire time, once she got out of the hospital, she was going back to school. Apart from the eating disorder per se, during the rest of her time, was she functional? Was she living a normal life in the sense of being able to do all the things she wanted to do? In other words, was the eating disorder taking over her life or is it something that had to be dealt with, but she could live a regular life the rest of the time? So over the course of her illness, which was really about 13 years, um, there were times when the eating disorder took over everything um, because with the eating disorder also came depression. And the depression basically was so crippling that it didn't give her space for anything else in her life. And then there were other times in her life. I mean, when we went for this private therapy, um, this private therapy enabled her to catch up with her own life. She was able to you know, get a high school diploma. She was able to do Shayrut Lumi for two years. She was able to get a job and live away from home. It enabled her to have a life, but then there were certain times when she just couldn't. I mean, she didn't have the energy, you know, the mental energy to do any of this. So it really, it's a roller coaster ride. You know, recovery and the path of illness is not linear. There's a lot of ups and downs, and a lot of times when a person can be doing really well and totally functional and you can barely tell that they have an eating disorder, and then other times when they're totally debilitated by it. I see. So this new treatment that was taking place while she was living at home, you said, saved her life and was effective. Obviously, it wasn't 
effective permanently. So what happened at that point? So, you know, during the entire course of my daughter's illness, which was, you know, about 13 years, she was always in treatment. Um, the treatment varied, you know, sometimes it was that outpatient, you know, once a week clinic type of place. Sometimes it was in the hospital, you know, she would put herself in the hospital. You know, when she got older, they say that a brain matures at around age 20. Um, and I saw that. I saw a big difference in she was able to take ownership of her own illness at a certain point. She wasn't fighting us at a certain point. She wasn't ready to recover, but she also didn't want to be sick. Um, and so she would check herself into the hospital kind of for a tune-up. And also for what does that mean? She wasn't ready to recover. I'm sorry. What does it mean? She wasn't ready to recover, but she didn't want to be sick. There are basically a lot of, uh, there's a lot of gray, you know, in, in the recovery rates for eating disorders, the rough numbers. And again, they're extremely rough and they're probably not correct, but they say that one third of the people make a full recovery. Um, one third of the people never recover and one third of the people recover well enough to function. But they're kind of like in this twilight where, you know, they're not living their best lives. They're functional at best, but they don't have joy in their life. And a lot of people like my daughter would fall into that area. You know, she could hold down a job. She could, you know, do things in her life, but she wasn't living. They say that people with eating disorders, they'll be alive, but they're not living. And that's what I found with my daughter. She didn't have, you know, the passion for life. Um, but she also didn't want to die. And she was kind of like in this area where a lot of people with eating disorders are, where it's this hopelessness of, I don't think I can recover. I don't know what the path forward is. I'm scared to give up my eating disorder because I think that it gives me something. It makes me special. It's just, it's incredibly complicated. And look, at the end of the story is that my daughter took her own life. Um, but the way that I look at it is that the treatment that she did and her own ability to fight for as long as she did, it gave us precious time. I mean, I, I think that I would look at things very differently, you know, had she died at age 14 or 15 than dying at age 27, having done things with her life, having had experiences with her life, having really fought and tried, and it's just different. So I can look back on treatment and say, okay, it didn't provide permanent recovery, but it did give her years of functionality and years of life and years of productivity and years of doing something meaningful and significant that mattered to her. And in retrospect, that was really, really important. Uh, let's go back to the beginning again. I want to ask about specific warning signs. You mentioned that diet that she was convinced to join. Perhaps it's not knowable, but would you say that that diet was, so to speak, the cause of her later eating disorder, or was it more a trigger that activated something that was already going on, either mentally or physiologically? So my daughter had the, cl the classic personality for someone with anorexia, um, which is to have a lot of anxiety, to be a total perfectionist, um, to be incredibly self-critical, self-motivated, you know, if my daughter got a 99, she'd be upset. Why wasn't it a hundred? Um, that personality. Um, mm -hmm. And that's a personality that is seen, meaning that's kind of like you, you, you look it up in, you know, scientific journals. That is the personality of someone with anorexia. And my daughter fit it to a T. In order to develop an eating disorder, first of all, you have to have a predisposition, right? You put 10 people on diets, right? Of those 10 people, eight will stop. They reach their goal and they stop. 
but two of them lose too much weight and it's out of their control. They can't stop. So basically my understanding of eating disorders um, based on years of being in the eating disorder professional world, I'm not a professional and just a parent. Um, I run a parent organization, but you know, I read the same journals that everybody else reads. I read the same research papers. And basically what happens is that, you know, you, a person restricts their food um, for whatever reason. It could be because you're sick. It's not always intentional. Some people develop eating disorders because they, you know, they have a stomach virus and it, you know, lasts for a few weeks and they lose too much weight. And at a certain point, when you're expending more energy than you're taking in, your body goes into what's called negative energy balance. And again, it's still not proven exactly the connection between that negative energy balance and the brain, but it's like a switch is flipped in the brain and it's out of your control. You cannot stop losing weight. You're addicted to losing weight. You have to lose weight, you know, and you have all these thoughts of the, oh no, it's not harming me. It's helping me. You know, this eating disorder is my friend and everything that comes along with it. But the first step to all of this is restriction of weight loss, no matter what eating disorder, by the way, not just anorexia. So basically, you know, the thought is that if you can prevent your child from dieting at all, then in theory, even if they have a predisposition, then, I mean, just look, just like if you, your kid has a predisposition to lung cancer and you can prevent them from ever smoking, you're reducing the risk of them dying from lung cancer, period. So I see it very much the same way. You know, you can reduce the risk of your child developing an eating disorder if they are not allowed to restrict food. And again, allowed, when you're talking about a teenager, it's not a simple concept, but you know, you hear what I'm saying. It's basically, you know, parents have to be very vigilant. Um, and a lot of restriction, by the way, looks like I want to become a vegetarian. I want to become vegan. I'm not eating gluten anymore. Um, a lot of things that are in the name of health are actually really in the name of an eating disorder. And again, parents are kind of like, well, why don't you want to, you know, why, why do you want to become a vegetarian or a vegan? Well, because it's cruel to eat animals. Okay, that's a legitimate answer from a 12-year-old. But that 12-year-old actually could be, you know, in the middle of an eating disorder crisis and the parents aren't seeing it because it's socially acceptable. It's socially acceptable to lose weight. It's socially acceptable to go running, you know, for two hours a day every day. It's socially acceptable to become vegan. So basically because of what's socially acceptable, parents are missing the ability to identify and diagnose an eating disorder early. And kids are only getting into treatment when it's already entrenched. Judy, is there any way to overcome that? Meaning, yes, parents often don't see it. Are there certain signs that would help them know? You said you first realized your daughter had a problem when you saw her arm and you said it looked like a concentration camp victim. Are there certain things other than they're not eating as much as before or when they get extremely thin? Is there anything else a parent can look for? Because simply saying that I want to become a vegan, it could be an eating disorder or it could be they want to be a exactly. vegan. And it could be. So basically, first of all, I believe that you know, no teen should be changing their eating habits um, without professional help. Meaning if your teen wants to become a vegan, go to a dietitian, you know, and get a meal plan that has enough calories to sustain them, you know, at their age, again, you know, teens are developing. You need a lot of calories during those years um, because otherwise they're not gonna grow. Height-wise, they're not gonna grow if they're not getting enough calories. So it's very important to get professional guidance if your child wants to change their eating habits. Um, and also, first of all, it's important 
to make sure that your pediatrician or family doctor weighs your child at least once a year. When my daughter was in the hospital, the dietitian asked for her growth charts because one of the ways that they plot you know, your target weight is looking at what you weighed historically from the time that you were born. And we discovered that for seven years, my daughter had not been weighed or measured. So the last you know, record that we had was from when she was seven and at the time she was 14. So you can't plot a growth chart without that data. So it's very important to make sure that your child is weighed and measured regularly because that'll also, you can spot irregularities. Um, you know, if there's, you know, a curve up, down, whatever it is, if you weigh regularly, you'll be able to spot that. And the last thing which I really tell parents is just make sure you see your child eating. Teens, they have erratic eating schedules. We all know that. And a lot of times we, they leave the house with a bag of cereal. Don't do that. Make them wake up 10 minutes early. Make them sit down and eat breakfast. You know, eat dinner with them. Family meals are really important. You know, have as many family meals as you can where you're sitting around the table and you're eating together as a family. You know, it really does make a difference. So just really monitoring what your kid eats, which is not, it's not intuitive when you're a parent of a teen, meaning when your child gets to a certain age, you give them independence and, you know, you just assume that they're going to be okay. And most kids are, but some kids aren't. So it's really important um, to make sure that they're eating what they need to be eating. And if you have any suspicion whatsoever, you have to confront it. You know, you confront it with your child. I, I use what I, you know, say I statements, not, you know, you're not eating. I'm concerned. You always frame it in the, this is what I'm seeing. This is, you know, from my perspective. And again, raise it with your doctor, but don't let it go untreated. Okay. Those are very important points. Thank you. I want to quote something you wrote in a recent blog post on the Times of Israel. You said, I'm angry because in the 15 years since my daughter was diagnosed with anorexia, nothing has changed. What do you mean when you say that nothing has changed? You told us about the terrible experiences that your daughter and you and your family had 15 years ago. Has everything stayed the same or perhaps put differently? What needs to be changed that right now is exactly the same as it was then? So the biggest thing that hasn't been changed across the world is treatment has not changed. The best treatment or the most effective treatment for adolescents is called family-based treatment. So first of all, it's not available in Israel. It wasn't available 14 years ago. It's not available now. And that's a travesty. When you have a treatment that you know, the data shows you that it works and it doesn't cost more. It's just a matter of training people in a different way. And actually it costs less because treatment is done at home. So you avoid hospitalization, you avoid a lot of costs, but for whatever reason in this country, it doesn't exist. And even across the world, I mean, I was shocked. You know, I kind of thought like, okay, well, we have these problems in Israel because it's Israel, but like, oh, in the United States, this must be the standard of care. And it's not. So it's a mystery to me why it's not quite honestly. But if you look at the research that's been done that directly impacts treatment, there aren't like new treatments coming out. It's not like anything's cutting edge. I mean, you know, there are a lot of people investing and trying, but from a parent perspective, we're not seeing anything new, quote unquote, on the market. You know, the treatment that's being used is the same treatment that was used 15 years ago. And also pediatricians don't know what an eating disorder looks like. And they didn't know that 15 years ago and they don't know it now. And you know, to me, there's no excuse. As a parent, I was forced to use the internet because I had no other recourse if I wanted to educate myself. The internet can be a wonderful place. 
If you want to learn something, there is ample opportunity to look it up. You know, if it's not taught to you officially, there's really no excuse. If it interests you to care for your patients, then you have to know what an eating disorder looks like. And you also have to know where to refer someone to if they have one. And the other thing I'm angry about is just, you want to take a look at the eating disorder field in general and see progress. Um, you know, you want to see in, in any field, right? I mean, every medical field, 15 years is a long time. You know, there's a lot of research being done in 15 years. There's a lot of think tanks. There's a lot of people putting effort into creating something new, creating something better. And, you know, there is nothing new and there is nothing better. And I feel like if my daughter was diagnosed today, she would be taking the exact same treatment path that led to her death as she took 15 years ago. So that's what upsets me is that there's no new path. There's no different path. There's no new philosophy. Parents are still being blamed. Parents are still being separated from their children. That school of thought of blame and guilt and the supposition of family dysfunction or family trauma is still there. So kids are still being harmed because they're not being treated properly. Um, and it's, it's hard. I mean, I really try not to be angry and not to lay blame. But, you know, when I look at everything as a whole and, you know, I offer peer counseling to parents. Um, not as part of my job, just because it's something that I've done over the past decade. Um, people find me, people call me, people tell me about their situations, and I try to guide them toward treatment or to kind of just support them peer to peer and help them get through it and explain the eating disorder a little bit, give them a little bit of psychoeducation that it helps them really to be able to be there for their child. And so I hear the stories. I hear what's happening on the ground in 2022. And it's the same thing as was happening on the ground in 2007. And it's just, it's a horrible thing. It's really a horrible thing to see that nothing has changed. And I know that the field is frustrated. I know the people treating people with eating disorders are frustrated. It's frustrating to know that you're not healing people, but nothing seems to be being done to move the needle. And that's something that I'm, I'm really... I mean, it's tragic. It's really tragic. It's tr Exactly. It's just tragic. I want to ask you about something you mentioned earlier about Gabriella's depression that accompanied her eating disorder. And that's actually my question. Is it a separate thing? I, this may be unanswerable. I don't know. But is the depression precipitated by the eating disorder? Is it something that is completely independent of it and coexists with it as a, as a different type of mental illness? How do they co-interact, so to speak? So that's a really good question, and it's a variable answer. Um, some people have psychiatric conditions that predate their eating disorder and that precipitate their eating disorder. Other people don't. So Gabriela didn't have anything besides the anxiety. Um, you know, she didn't have any diagnosis. So the depression came with the eating disorder. Mm. But for some people, it comes before. I see. And many people have comorbid conditions which means they don't just have an eating disorder. They have an eating disorder and depression, an eating disorder and OCD. And that kind of creates another level of complexity in terms of treatment because you have to treat everything. You can't just treat one or the other. Um, and there's not always competence to treat the whole, you know, the whole package. So that's a whole other issue. 
I'm just thinking about how this complexity can be so overwhelming, both to the patient and to the family. Let's talk about the Orthodox community. I have heard, I understand that eating disorders might be more prevalent in the Orthodox community than elsewhere. First of all, is that true? And if it is true, why do you think that might be the case? I don't think they're more prevalent. I think they're rampant, but they're rampant everywhere. Part of the issue of what you're asking is that there are no real statistics. So, you know, I sat in a discussion, you know, in the Knesset with the Ministry of Health years ago, and they said, okay, what are the numbers? How many people are being treated? How many people are better? How many people died? How many people are still in treatment? And there were no numbers. So when there's no numbers, you have no idea whatsoever if the rate is the same or more than or less than. So I can only tell you anecdotally, um, many of the people who I help are religious. Some are totally secular, um, but it's definitely eating disorders are everywhere in the you know Orthodox community. I always wondered about, you know, they always say that the media influences, you know, uh, models and magazines and it has such a big influence on eating disorders. I then look at, you know, the Haredi community and I'm like, okay, well, they have a very high incidence of eating disorders, but they're not looking at, you know, models in bathing suits and they don't have the same influences that we have. So how is it possible that their rates are just as high as our rates? Clearly there are different factors that influence the development of eating disorders. So, you know, for one society, it may be that, you know, the media does influence. And again, when I talk about influence, it is not cause, okay? These things don't cause eating disorders. What they cause is the restriction that leads to an eating disorder. They cause the diet, they cause the weight loss. And I think in the Orthodox world, I think particularly in the Haredi world, I have friends in the States where, you know, their daughters have to put together a shidduch resume. You know, you basically put together a resume that includes your physical characteristics. You have to send a picture and, you know, the boy's mother is the one that has to take a look and either approve it or disapprove it. And it really is just surface deep. And people who, you know, are overweight have very big problems getting dates because the system is weight biased and it's rigged. And there's a lot of thin bias in the Orthodox world. Not that there's any more thin bias in the Orthodox world than there is anywhere else. But I think, you know, particularly, you know, when people get to the age of um, considering dating, it puts a huge pressure on them to lose weight. And some of those people are going to lose weight and they'll be fine. And some of those people, because they're genetically predisposed to an eating disorder, are not going to be fine. And it's kind of acceptable. You know, it, it, it really has become acceptable to have an eating disorder because better to have an eating disorder than to be fat. That's a very common perception um, in the world that I live in. And it's, it's, that's tragic. Um, as someone who lost a daughter, I can tell you that that's absolutely ridiculous. But it really is the way that people feel. So I think the influences on the Orthodox world are different than on the secular world, but no less impactful and I think that the numbers are really, really high and they're high across the spectrum of orthodoxy. They're just as high in modern orthodox as they are in Haredi, as they are in you know, national orthodox. Like really, the thing that I see a little bit different is that in the Haredi world, because of the whole dating and because of the whole, I want my child to get married thing, 
eating disorders are swept under the rug. Um, I get a lot of calls from parents who have 30 year olds, 35 year olds, people with eight, nine children, and their you know, daughter is in the hospital and the son-in-law is at home with these kids and they're calling me for help. And I say to them, well, when did your daughter develop an eating disorder? And more often than not, the answer is, oh, when she was 15, when she was 14. And basically, you know, they, because they wanted their daughters to get married, they just hit it. And the thing about an eating disorder is you can't sweep it under the rug. It's going to come out. And it comes out at a point where it doesn't just impact one person. It impacts an entire very large family. So that is one thing that I really do see in the Orthodox community is that when you try to sweep it under the rug, you know, it just comes out with even greater damage later on. Unfortunately, that's true for a lot of issues in the Orthodox world as well. Uh, you know, I want to ask another question about Orthodoxy, but before I get there, there's one thing you said, which I just need to find out. You said there are no numbers. Why are there no numbers? Why is it different from other disorders where they do have information and data? I do not have an answer for that. I honestly don't know. I mean, part of it, I think, is no one wants to see the numbers. And the thing about eating disorders is because they take so long um, to recover from, these hospital programs have revolving doors. You know, it was always a joke with my daughter. Whenever she went back in the hospital, I'd be like, okay, who do you know? Because she would never go into the hospital without knowing at least one person who was with her during a previous hospitalization. They know each other. It's a whole world. And it's the kind of thing that um, I think part of it is there's a lot of compassion because they don't want to turn away somebody with an eating disorder who's been treated before. They want to try to give people as much chance as possible to recover. On the other hand, there are only X amount of beds. So if you're giving it to a person who's been treated four times, you're not giving it to a person who has never been treated. And there's a lot of ethics involved. And I think to bring those numbers to light actually would create a lot of conflict professionally. And I don't know whether that's something that's conscious or unconscious, um, but it's very frustrating to me that there really are no statistics, meaning we don't know how many people are dying of eating disorders in Israel every year. No idea whatsoever. No one has those numbers. And, and that's something that somebody has to have those numbers because if you don't see the problem, you can't solve the problem. And that's really how I see it. That's my biggest issue. I don't care about numbers. I care about problem solving. I care about finding solutions to better treatment. And if, you're, if, if you don't know what you're up against, then there's no motivation really to improve what you have. And I find that it just promotes lack of motivation because there's just this assumption, oh, everything's fine. And everything really is not fine. Yeah. My other question, Judy, about the Orthodox community, and perhaps this is unanswerable or even unfair, Judaism and Orthodox Judaism in particular is very food-centric in a lot of ways. Every week on Shabbat, we have three meals, and we talk about three meals. We also have every Yom Tov two big meals. The one Yom Tov where we don't, we have no food, meaning it's the opposite. Pesach involves a month of preparation, all of which involves food. And perhaps if you were to ask a non-Jew the most famous Jewish ritual law, they might say the laws of Kashrut. Is it possible that this focus on food can serve as a type of trigger for people who already have a predisposition towards eating disorders. And of course, lest anyone misunderstand me, these votes should not be changed and will not be changed. That's not what I mean. But it does mean that if somebody does have a predisposition towards an eating disorder, we have to be on the lookout when dealing with these mitzvot. So do you think that there is some sort of correlation? I personally don't think so. I can understand where you would see a correlation. Um, I, I just, I find that, you know, 
the numbers are so high in so many other societies that don't focus on food. I think that it's a very big challenge for people with eating disorders. Um, people with eating disorders hate Shabbat. It is, you know, it, they're tortured. They're actually tortured because the idea of sitting around a table and having to eat with a group of people, it really, it's, it's too much for them. So I never really understood that. For a while, I didn't understand that. Why my daughter really didn't like Shabbat because I was, I love Shabbat. Shabbat's great, right? We've got all this food, we've got family. It's, you know, you rest, you chill, like what's bad about Shabbat? The other thing about having an eating disorder is it's like there's always a voice in your head. There's always noise in your head. And on Shabbat, it's worse because you can't do things to alleviate that noise. Um, a lot of people listen to music. And by the way, you can do things to alleviate that noise. You know, a lot of people listen to music to really to calm the demons inside of them. Um, a lot of people journal, you know, they find it very therapeutic to write down their feelings. So Shabbat presents a specific challenge of you have to eat and you have to spend time in the company of people who are watching you and you can't let it out in any way. You can't find a way really to quiet the noise in your head. So it's particularly difficult for Orthodox people. I don't think that the food culture contributes to anything. I think it makes it harder. I mean, I think practically speaking, it just makes it harder day to day. What you just said, Judy, is very important. The idea that on Shabbat, it's so difficult for people who can't go on their phone, who can't listen to music, who can't journal. I'll just mention that Ravioni Rosenzweig, who lives in Beit Shemesh, as you and I do, has talked about this. He talked about it a little bit on this podcast, and he recently wrote a book about it. I just want to say, I, I don't know what he would say about any of those given situations, but anyone who's in this situation who has a question shouldn't assume that it's prohibited. It's worth talking to a Rav, him or somebody else, about what one should do, because this is pikuach nefesh. This is talking about saving a life. So obviously, it's not as simple as you can't listen to music on Shabbat. It could be in certain situations that would be different. So I, I mean, just want to make sure I hear that. He right. actually spoke about it. Um, we had an Azkara for Gabriella two weeks ago, and he spoke. And he said, in terms of music, you know, there are ways to do it. You know, you set your phone with a playlist before Shabbat. You put in headphones. You don't have to touch anything. It's already plugged in. Um, when we asked for my daughter years ago, we were told to buy an MP3 player with a 24 hour battery. Same idea. You know, you put in a playlist, you don't touch it. Um, journaling, we actually bought a pen um, from Somet, the kind of pen that doctors use, that it's erasing ink. So it's not considered permanent. And she was able, again, she couldn't read anything. If she didn't photocopy it, she couldn't keep it. But a lot of it wasn't about keeping it, a lot of it was about getting it out in the moment. And we did find ways that were halakhically acceptable for her to be able to quiet the noise in her head when it was really loud on Shabbat. So it's definitely worth asking a rabbi like Rav Yoni about these things who really understands mental illness, because a lot more things are allowed than you would think. And it really makes such a difference in the lives of people to be able to have these outlets on Shabbat. Yes. Thank you for telling me that. I want to talk about the organization that you founded, Families Empowered and Supporting Treatment of Eating Disorders. Two questions about that, Judy. First of all, what is this organization? And second of all, a bit of a delicate question, which I alluded to earlier, you're not a trained clinician or a trained therapist. So when you talk to people, from what perspective are you giving this advice? Okay. So first of all, I didn't found it. Um, I actually came in as the executive director last year, and it was founded in 2007. It is an organization that is of parents and for parents of people with eating disorders. So essentially, it's built on um, the ideal of peer support, parent to parent peer support. Um, our tagline is we're here because we've been there. 
you know, the idea of being able to help someone because you've been in their shoes before. Um, and also we provide psychoeducation and empowerment and resources because we know what parents need to know. You know, we know, okay, your child was just diagnosed. You know nothing. What do you need to know in the next hour, in the next day, in the next week, in the next month, so that you can successfully get them on the road to recovery? So that's what the organization does. It is all peer support. It is all parent to parent. All of our parent peer support volunteers are parents who have kids who either have recovered from an eating disorder or are in recovery or are not in recovery, um, but they have personal lived experience of this. Um, and FEAST, it's meant to be a peer support organization. We don't represent ourselves as professionals at all. We call ourselves experts by experience. And I really love that term because that's what we are. Um, I consider myself an expert on eating disorders. I am not credentialed. I never would consider, you know, giving advice to a patient. Um, I don't talk to kids. Kids approach me. They want to speak to me. I do not speak to kids ever um, because I feel like it crosses an ethical boundary that makes me extremely uncomfortable. Um, I only speak with parents and I only speak from my own lived experience. So, you know, if someone comes to me with a situation that I am totally unfamiliar with, I will tell them that they should go elsewhere to find information or support. Um, I would also, if somebody comes and describes an urgent medical issue, I would tell them, go to the emergency room, go see a doctor. Um, so there's no lines crossed in terms of, I am very much just a parent peer supporter. That's my job. That's what I do with my spare time. You know, I started counseling parents because it was needed, because there was no one to speak to, because when my daughter got sick, I had no one to speak to. And it's a really horrible thing. You know, like your sink is broken. You go find a plumber. You don't know a plumber. Oh, just put it on your neighborhood chat list and somebody will help you. Well, your kid needs a psychiatrist or your kid needs a provider for eating disorder treatment. You're not putting that on your neighborhood chat list. And you need to find somebody who can tell you where do you go for treatment and how do you approach it and how does it work and what do I need to know? And it gets really, really hard. And you need someone to say to you, it's okay. You'll get through it. It's just the storm, storms pass. And you need someone to also say to you, the eating disorders are serious and they're treatable. There's always hope. You know, these are messages the parents need to hear. You're not alone. That's a really important one. You know, you could feel so isolated when your child has an eating disorder. And, you know, basically FEAST is just a community of parents who have gone through similar experiences and who just join together to help each other. And it's really a privilege to, you know, run this kind of organization that really it's, it's kind of a pay it forward. Parents go through this process. They go through their journey. They get to the other side and some of them turn back around to help other people because they know what it was like and they want to help pull other people up. And that's really what it is. And that's what I do in the most literal sense, go back into the hell of eating disorders because I think I can help other people. It's hard, but it's really significant and meaningful. And I really love it. And I'm sure that the people who work with you are very grateful to hear your words of wisdom and your experience. We're almost out of time, Judy. I have one last question I want to ask you. Underlining a lot of what you've said, especially what you just mentioned right now when people feel alone, is what I assume is a stigma that's associated with mental illness, with eating disorders, with suicidal ideation. What would you recommend to people, society, individuals that we do in order to help overcome that stigma? Because I'm assuming, and maybe I'm wrong, but I'm assuming the ability to talk about it is a very important step. The fact that we don't hide it, the fact that we can discuss with other people, apart from just the therapeutic value of talking to other people for those who are suffering from an eating disorder, 
one of the factors that presumably makes it even more difficult is the fact that no one wants to talk about it, that it's considered embarrassing. It's something that people want to sweep under the carpet, as in that example we gave before about Shiduchim in some segments of the Orthodox world. What can we do to make it easier to talk about, to get rid of that stigma? Talk about it. <laughs> That's the only way to, you know, to overcome that stigma is to talk about it. And people always say to me, oh, you're so brave. And, you know, why? Meaning I'm telling my story and my daughter's story and my family's story. And I'm very fortunate that my family's in agreement with me, that we have the potential to do so much good here and to help people. And we're willing to violate our own privacy in order to do that. And I understand that there are some families that don't feel comfortable doing that. Um, and I think it's a shame. First of all, I think it's a horrible thing to live with this secret in the family. I think it's horrible for everyone involved. When my daughter was diagnosed and we said to our other kids, we said, you can talk about it if you feel you need to with people that you trust. And it was interesting because my son was seven at the time and he went to his teacher because he, inst- he, he knew intuitively he couldn't speak to another seven-year-old about a sister with an eating disorder, but he could talk to his teacher and talk about how he felt that his sister was in the hospital. And my daughters also, I mean, they found friends who could support them. But when you don't talk about it and you don't allow your kids to talk about it, you're denying everyone that support. And you're also making it unavailable if somebody wants to ask you a question. If somebody needs information, you're keeping it all to yourself, which to me is just, I don't think it's right. I understand privacy, I really do. But I think that the more that you talk about it and the more that you put yourself out there as this is the struggle that my families are encountering, first of all, it normalizes it because, oh, well, they're a really good family. And if they have a kid with depression and they have a kid with an eating disorder and they have a kid who's suicidal, well, then it must be mainstream somehow. So it's not only for the dysfunctional families, every family potentially could have somebody in the family with mental health struggles. And I think that it's really, you know, the only way to shed the shame and to reduce the stigma is just by being open and honest about it and treating it like any other illness. You wouldn't be embarrassed if your kid had diabetes. You wouldn't be embarrassed if your kid had an autoimmune disease. There's no need to be embarrassed if your child has a mental health illness or if your child has an eating disorder. It's an illness, just like every other illness. And I think that when we put mental illness on par with physical illness and we really, really do that, I think that's a really good way to reducing stigma in all communities. It really is a societal issue across many cultures, but particularly in certain cultures that the shame and the stigma really do preclude people from getting the help they need. And that's just sad. And eating disorders affect the entire family. It doesn't only affect the person who's suffering with it. And everyone in the family needs support and everyone in the help needs in the family needs help. And if you're not open about it and you make your kids hide it, and you make it into some big shameful secret, then they can't receive the help that they need. And also it's not fair to the person who's suffering. They didn't do anything wrong. There's nothing wrong with them. And when you kind of hide them and you you kind of like put them in the corner of shame, it, it makes them feel horrible, even worse. And, you know, I think that that just, that to me just adds insult to injury. Like, why would you do that to your child? So again, that's my perspective. I know a lot of people feel very differently and I understand why they do, but I think that if we really want to reduce stigma, then we do that by being open and talking about it. Okay. Well, Judy Krasna, I really appreciate your being so open and honest today. I know this is a very, very difficult topic, but your willingness to talk about it is I'm sure helpful for very many people. And I appreciate your coming on the podcast. Thank you. 
Thank you. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in Orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest Orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.